today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, Premier Doug Ford made an announcement about uh, extra money funding for the city of Toronto for the, the gun problem and the gang problem. Uh, but that that really almost took second seat to to what was going on there because what happened yesterday is what's happened a lot of the times now when Ford makes an announcement. Uh, he hesitates to take any questions at all from the media, and he has, well, some trained SEALs. I mean, clappers. These are staff members that go in there, and they populate the, the media room, and they start clapping and cheering uh, when and so Ford doesn't hear anybody from the media. It's a bizarre circumstance. Uh, Steve Pakin, uh, host of The Agenda with TVO, uh, has been covering Queen's Park longer, if not longer, than just about anybody. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Stephen, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Happy to be with you, Bill. How you doing? I'm doing well, thanks very much. I, I was a little frustrated watching this yesterday, and I've, I've talked to you about uh, decorum, of course, at Queen's Park and what goes on. Give me your read on what you've seen from, from this administration, especially when it comes to these, these announcements and this, this, this clapping that goes on. Well, maybe a little background for your listeners would be helpful here. Uh, This started not when Doug Ford formed government, but actually during the election campaign. Uh, So this has been going on for several months already. And the gist of it is, obviously, uh, first when he was uh, the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, running to become premier, and then now since premier, uh, from time to time, uh, he or his candidates or his cabinet ministers hold press conferences. And during the course of those press conferences, they, of course, have information that they want to impart to the citizens of Ontario through the mainstream media and others. And in the course of doing these press conferences, uh, the the, uh, politician in question will give their information. The news media has an opportunity to ask three, four, five, six questions, whatever it is on that particular day. And then, uh, kind of apropos of nothing... Uh, you called them trained seals. Okay, we'll use your language. Uh, let's just say that they are paid conservative staffers who come in at the back of the hall and start applauding wildly. And the idea is, I guess, to sort of cut off any potential further questioning by the reporters who are present, and then the politicians sort of exit the stage, and that's the end of it. I guess the principle at stake here that is concerning to some people is that these are supposed to be professional, civilized news conferences where politicians try to get a message out and reporters acting on behalf of the citizens of Ontario uh, ask follow-up questions to try to get more information. They're not supposed to be pep rallies. They're not supposed to be frat house parties. They're supposed to be professional, professionally handled events. And the taking people away from their regular jobs to come in and perform like trained seals at the back of the hall doesn't seem very professional to a lot of people. Well, and it, it breaks with protocol, and I understand that some people are going to say, well, who cares about protocol? Well, just about anybody who's held office at Queen's Park has done this. I mean, and this is not a partisan issue. I, I saw some of the response to your tweets yesterday, Steve, and some people were saying, wow, you're just taking shots. at You guys are out to get Doug Ford, which is a load of crap. I mean, this is really the media doing their job, which is to hold elected officials accountable. Yeah, I think so. And, and I mean, the fact is, I, I think until a few days ago, uh, Doug Ford really hadn't put one foot wrong. Uh, he came into office uh, with a strong mandate, a strong majority government based on 40% of the total vote. He got 76 seats. Uh, the, the public made plain what it thought of the previous Liberal government. They got seven seats and are, and are only allowed to ask one question uh, every day at question period. That's it. Uh, you know, the first, I think, several weeks of the Ford administration were such that 
he was basically che- checking off boxes of promises that he had made during the election campaign and promises that he had kept. And you heard, I mean, anybody who's watched any of the news coverage or who has watched any of Question Period uh, will have heard the familiar mantra, you know, promise made, promise kept, and mm-hmm. they do this several times. Uh, this past week was a bit of an exception. They broke a promise. They broke a pretty big promise on the basic income pilot, which, of course, Hamiltonians would be uh, all too familiar with, given that it's one of the three sites for the pilot program. Uh, they not only broke their promise not to cancel that, they then kind of, well, I, I don't like to use the word lied, so I'm not going to, but they then denied the obvious, which is that they had promised not to cancel it and did. Uh, that was, the, I think, the first you know, significant foot that they had put wrong. Now all this clapping at the end of a news conference, which even their supporters think is ridiculous. Ontario Proud, uh, on, uh, online, you know, this online, yeah, yeah. Uh, very supportive outfit. Ontario Proud thinks this is a dumb thing to do. Lori Goldstein from the Toronto Sun, big supporter, thinks it's a dumb thing to do. Hamilton Sue Ann Levy, Toronto Sun, thinks it's a dumb thing to do. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. Uh, I don't know why they insist on doing it. I think you said, Bill, at the top of this, it, it, obsc- it obscures the message they're actually trying to get out. So I'm not sure what the value of this is. Uh, other than to kind of, um, you know, stick a stick a thumb in the eye of the media or something like that, which is pretty popular these days, I guess, in some political circles. And you know, we see what goes on at the White House, and and I don't know if they're trying to emulate that. I don't even know if I want to try to make that analogy, but it's 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 something that happens. And I okay, I get that. I think it's dumb, but I I get understand where they they're doing this. But and again, I I don't maybe tradition's too too lame a word here, Steve, but. Anybody who has held that office, the corner office at Queen's Park, has understood that this is part of the job. You may not like getting questions from the media. It may be uncomfortable, maybe even embarrassing sometimes. But whether you're Mike Harris or Dalton McGinty or Kathleen Wynne or Ernie Eves or Bill Davis or anybody else, that's what you need to do. The media scrums, the questions after. Ford and, and well, his staff, his handlers, whatever it is, just don't seem to have any respect for that. They simply say, we want to read what we've written for the premier, and then we're going. Well, you mentioned Bill Davis, so let me pick up on that. Yeah. Because his, his government was the first one I covered at Queen's Park in the early 1980s. And just to show you how far things have gone from then, Mr. Davis used to come out after question period pretty much every day. And he used to submit to what is called a scrum of journalists. And there would be, you know, anywhere from 10 to 15 journalists all in a circle around him, sticking microphones in his face. Uh, that's why it's called a scrum, because it sort of looks like that scrum that you have in a rugby game where everybody sort of clusters in together. And Mr. Davis would stand there for, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes, whatever it was, and take questions. And some of them were uncomfortable, and you knew when they were because he would chew a little harder on that pipe of his. But he sat there and he did his job. He understood it was part of the job. Over the years, that practice has become less and less apparent. And I think we st- first started to see the, the, the difficulties with it, uh, frankly, under Dalton McGinty, where suddenly they put up uh, a strip, like a, those kind of, li- I don't, I'm not sure what you call them, barriers, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and media had to stand behind barriers, and rather than put microphones in the premier's face, everybody had to plug into a box so that the premier had his space. And, uh, you know, the media were usually kept three or four feet away. Now, it's even further back, media have to stand back now 15 to 20 feet uh, behind barriers. And not only uh, are media not permitted to ask questions, sort of, there's a very informal um, choreography to it all, Bill. You know, uh, questions tend to be just sort of asked from wherever 
reporters are standing uh, in the room. Uh, those days are gone. The added feature that the Ford government has, has uh, introduced now is that there is a single microphone held by a government minder, and the Premier will not acknowledge any questions from anybody who asks them unless they are asked into that microphone held by that government minder. Have you ever seen anything like that before? No. And then that, and that's and I know you it, blogged about this just the other day. Yeah, well, I haven't seen that before because it's never happened before. I mean, the, the, I understand that... W- Everybody understands that there is a tension between a government that wants to get its message out and control the message as much as possible and reporters who are trying to get past the spin and ask follow-up questions in order to get to empirically provable facts. Remember, that's what we're in the business of doing, trying to get empirically provable facts, information to our readers, listeners, viewers, whatever. That's what it's all about. And both sides understand that there's a tension there uh, that goes into that whole thing. But... Over the years, I started off with Bill Davis, we're now at Doug Ford. The, the amount of, uh, I guess, difficulty in doing that job seems to have been ratcheted up over and over and over to the point now where we have questions only asked through a government minders holding a microphone, only three, four, or five questions, and then applause to um, you know, ensure a, a, an, a, an uncivilized, frankly, exit for the premier and whatever cabinet ministers are up there. I don't understand, Bill, why somebody can't say, a press secretary who's there, I don't understand why they can't say, the premier has to get the question period now, we'll have time for one more question. And then somebody asks the question, and then the premier walks off. And it's not a frat house, it's not a pep rally, uh, it's just it's a civilized professional environment where reporters acting as proxies for the general public do their job. I don't know why we can't get back to that. It just makes too much sense to me. Well, and it, there's a, 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 a lack of information that, that that I find you know very troubling as as a journalist. And you've been doing these for years, and I've talked to a lot of other guys that have been. Uh, Richard Brennan, of course, who's a you know a frequent guest on the program, did that for years and years. Uh, and and Alan Carter, of course, at Global. I mean, they understand that, and they're not playing gotcha. I know that's how it's been characterized by some of the people that are trying to defend what Ford is doing. No, they're trying to seek information. I mean, it's one thing to say, uh, I'm going to cancel the uh, the wind projects. Okay, well, what are the financial implications? I don't want to talk about that. I just want you, I just want you guys to reprint what I've just put here <laughs> in the press release, and that's your news for the day. Well, that's not news. That's public relations, and that's not what your job is. Well, indeed. And, there, and there's that, you know, Marty Barron is the editor of the, National, of the uh, excuse me, Washington Post. And I guess as such, he has a, a very significant leadership role in American journalism today. And, and again, I'm not, we don't want to push these comparisons with Donald Trump too far. But he has a line, Bill. He has a line which says, we're not at war with the White House, we're at work. We're not at war, we're at work. And that's the fact. I, I, you mentioned Twitter earlier. I looked at Twitter yesterday as well, and there were a lot of people who were similarly outraged by these frat house tactics. And a lot of them said, you reporters just... Don't show up. Don't show up for press conferences anymore. Or, you know, turn your back on the, on the pr- premier when these kinds of things happen. And I think people have to understand that while that might feel good to do, um, that's not what our jobs are about. Yeah. Our jobs are really about getting empirically provable information for the public. We're not at war. We're at work. And, uh, you know, nobody sits around. The press gallery doesn't sit around. Reporters don't sit around thinking, how can we collectively embarrass the government today? I know people, some people may think that. It just doesn't happen. There's, there's a lot of competition, actually, among journalists to get better stories. 
to get more impactful stories. And the notion that they're sort of sitting around thinking, how can we embarrass the government today? It's just not on. That's not the way these things work. And I'd love to, uh, you know, uh, there, there was one press conference, I think, earlier this week, Bill, Caroline Mulroney, the Attorney General, and Rod Phillips, the Environment Minister, had it. Now mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember if it was earlier this week or late last week. I can't remember now. In any event, um, for the first time in months, reporters just asked their questions from where they were standing in the room like the old days. And the ministers, to their credit, took those questions. The reporters basically just ignored the single government minder with the microphone. And when the five questions, or however many it was, were over, somebody said, the ministers have to get the question period right now, last question. Somebody asked the last question, there was no applauding, and the ministers walked out. Now that's a professional, civilized environment. Uh, I wondered whether we were starting to turn over a new leaf and try that out all the time. And then yesterday, it went back to normal with the with the train seals and the stupidity again. So I don't know. I, d- I just don't know where things are at right now. I mean, even earlier this week, Christine Elliott, who is now the deputy premier, of course, uh, said it was silly. I mean, what they're doing, and now I, and it's, he's I, not I, the only one. There's I, lots of them that think that. They I, may not say it out loud, but lots of them think that. Well, and she did, and you'd figured, okay, maybe that's going to be the end of it. But like you say, then we saw this yesterday. But the thing, I guess, one of the other elements that bothers me, there's a bit of a double standard here for some of the people that, are, that again are defending this action. They loved it when the media were going after Kathleen Wynne. I mean, you know, whether it was the gas plants things, or there's this or that, or the you know the wind turbine doesn't matter. They wanted that stuff. They get listen. We're going to hold her feet to the fire. Well, and that and that was the right thing to do. I don't care who's in power, whether it's an NDP, a Liberal, or a, a PC government. The fact is that the media is going to do that. And Doug Ford's got to understand that if you want to be the premier of this province, you've got to be accountable. Well, and the reality is th- there is an adversarial relationship there. But if a government is doing what it said it was going to do and does a good job, it gets reelected, regardless of that adversarial relationship. I don't have to tell you, Dalton McGinty won three in a row. Mike Harris won two in a row. Bill Davis won five in a row. Or, excuse me, four in a row. Uh, David Peterson won two in a row. I mean, it is possible, even with an adversarial relationship with the media that cover Queen's Park, it's possible to get reelected if you do what you say you're going to do, if you do a good job. So the notion that the, the you know the notion that holding to account the government of a day is somehow going to render them uh, hopelessly unpopular, and therefore they have no chance of getting their message out or getting reelected. I mean, the empirically provable facts just don't support that, right? Well, there's. Listen, I, I laugh when I hear that criticism because <laughs> the insinuation here is that the media can actually swing public outcome about how it's going to happen. They, they give the media a lot more credit than they deserve. I mean, if we're th- if we're that good at doing that, Steve, we're not getting paid enough money. <laughs> I mean, that's what it comes down to. It's it's a perception, really. In other words, put the heat on the guys I don't like, but leave my guy alone. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't know where this goes, Bill. I think that's the key thing now. The key thing is, all right, we've seen this pattern take place over the last several months. Uh, we have seen the reaction. I think there's been an enormous, even, amongst, even among conservatives, there is a level of embarrassment here at, at, at these tactics. I mean, just try to remember for a second. These are the people who are shipped in to do these things, this clapping, this train seal routine. These are people who have jobs. These are conservative staffers who are paid by taxpayers to do real work. And they are taken away from that real work to come to press conferences where they are ordered by, and I'm told it's the, it starts with the chief of staff, Dean French, in the premier's office. Earlier during the campaign, it was Corey Tonight, who was the director of the campaign. I'm told these people, and they're generally, you know, either 
you know, sort of um, fairly low on the food chart, so mm-hmm. they're nervous about keeping their jobs. They may be embarrassed about it too, but they are told to show up. They are told to applaud like wild at the end of the thing, uh, even though they're embarrassed to do it, and and they do. And it's taking, I mean, never mind it looks stupid. This is not what they're paid to do. If you're a taxpayer in Ontario, you ought to be concerned about the fact that people are being taken away from real work to do this, which is embarrassing. Steve Pakin hosted the agenda uh, on TVO and uh, frustrated like a lot of us are. Thanks so much, Steve. Great talking with you again today. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots to talk about. Uh, obviously, the Saudi Arabia-Canada thing has been very problematic for a number of reasons. We talked about the impact it was going to have on medical schools and doctors, really, uh, with the uh, the recall of all those uh, Saudi students that have been told to leave Canada. And a number of them, of course, are in medical training facilities, including here at McMaster. Uh, the other element of that, of course, it, although it hasn't been part of the discussion, it's always kind of hanging out there as a possible threat is oil. Uh, And that's led to the discussion about maybe Canada should stop using oil from the Saudis and maybe just use the stuff that were taken out of the ground in Alberta. I don't know how practical that is, but we're going to talk to Dan McTeague about it just after 10.30 this morning and see if that is a possible solution. Right now, after 10 months of being leader of the uh, federal NDP, Jagmeet Singh has finally decided he does want to run and get a seat in the House of Commons. Uh, His fortunes lie in the Vancouver area riding of Burnaby South, but uh, it's not a slam dunk. Tim Harper writes about this, uh, freelance writer and editor, and he joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. Morning, Tim. How are you doing today? I'm good, Bill. Happy Friday. And to you, too. Great to have you with us on the program today. Uh, wondered when this was finally going to happen. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, of course, uh, when he won the leadership, said that I really don't need to get in there right away. There's lots more I can be doing here. Uh, is he having second thoughts about that? Yeah, quite clearly, and, and so is his caucus. Um, so are party officials. Uh, it's one thing to go... Uh, around the country and, uh, and, and try to meet voters uh, uh, outside the House of Commons. That's fine, but he seems to have just the earth has swallowed him up. He's not he's not gaining any traction. He's not gaining any attention. And I guess the worst thing that can happen to you uh, as a federal political uh, leader is to become irrelevant. And he was bordering on irrelevancy. Uh, so I think there is a um, uh, there's an urgency to getting him uh, to Ottawa. Um, getting him engaged in the uh, daily cut and thrust in the house, get him in front of the cameras uh, more often in Ottawa, uh, and he's going to try to do it uh, in a riding that, as you point out, is is, is no slam dunk, but in uh, but in Burnaby South, and he's all in. He's moving there. How do how do th- you've seen this happen for years though, Tim? I mean, when he won the leadership, he was uh, he was the darling of the media. I mean, you know, he was on this well, hour is twenty two minutes. He was doing all sorts of comedic things. He was on newscasts and. It's just all of a sudden, you're right, it's just uh, Jagmeet who uh, within a couple of months. Yeah, you know, there's, um, but there's a couple of factors at play. Uh, you know, Justin Trudeau did this when he was uh, the leader of the third party, but uh, Trudeau did have a, a seat in the Commons, so there was a difference there, but he spent very little time uh, in Ottawa. But uh, Trudeau had the name and the, uh, and the celebrity status that did keep him in the news. I think one of the problems, to be honest with you, that uh, Jagmeet Singh has had is just the um, the gutting of the uh, media industry in this uh, country that often there aren't resources available in a newsroom to have uh, somebody dispatched out to listen to uh, the, the leader of the, of the third party. So I think that's one reason that he seemed to be uh, lacking national attention. 
But, you know, you can look at any of the metrics, Bill, and they're not good. The, the, the polling numbers are dismal. The um, the fundraising, that he was supposed to be, you know, the guy who started to fill the coffers again. They are lagging far behind the other two major parties, the NDP is, in, in fundraising. Uh, and as we've said, uh, profile. And, you know, let's face it, uh, it's not unfair to say that this guy has had a very long learning curve and is dropped the ball a few times and has actually been in the news for all the wrong reasons when he does bob into the headlines. So it's been a rough 10 months. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, but as you mentioned in the piece, Tim, uh, he's not the first NDP leader uh, to be in this circumstance. Alexa McDonough and Jack Clayton, for that matter, after they won the, the federal leadership, uh, didn't get seats right away. Uh, I don't remember Leighton Star uh, you know, dimming at all, though. I mean, is it just because Leighton was that much more of an ebullient politician? He always seemed to be out there. Uh, there were a couple. There's a couple things there. Layton spent most of his time in Ottawa. He was it was becoming a running joke at the press gallery at the time that uh, wherever there was a microphone, there was Jack. He, he um, is you know he did travel. He obviously went out and met voters. But he, when the House was sitting, he was in the foyer, ready to comment on anything every day. Um, Singh, on the other hand, has chosen to travel and go further afield and try to rebuild NDP strength and in uh, traditional areas and had recently only been in Ottawa essentially uh, on Wednesday's caucus day. Uh, so he wasn't getting kind of profile that Jack was. Alexa McDonough uh, did much the same as Jack. She had more of a profile in, uh, in uh, Ottawa, but she, she was under uh, uh, an awful lot of pressure to, to seek a seat. Uh, and, and you may recall what, there, there, uh, I forget exactly what riding in Hamilton, but there was a Hamilton riding. Uh, that that came available, and she was under uh, an awful lot of pressure to run in a, a, a by-election, I believe, in Hamilton East. Uh, and she resisted, and she waited, and she won at home in Halifax. Uh, Jack Layton waited and won at home here in uh, Toronto. Uh, the difference here is that uh, Jagmeet Singh can't wait. There's too much uh, time still before the next federal election. Uh, and, you know, there's there just aren't any safe NDP seats out there. Um uh, you know, his base is in the 905 north of Toronto, but there's nothing happening there. Uh, and he either didn't ask caucus, uh, a caucus member to give up a, a so-called safe seat uh, or the, he did and was rebuffed. And, you know, you got to raise the question, uh, and I've reached out to David Christopherson on this. He hasn't responded, but as you know, he's decided that he's retiring. Yeah. Uh, Hamilton uh, Center uh, is a Christopherson seat, but it's a, it's a solid NDP seat would probably be safer than Burnaby South if uh, Christopherson had decided to step away now. Yeah, well, that's, that's the speculation we heard, Tim. I mean, the 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 rumor about Christopherson not running for re-election uh, has been out there for some time. And and the, what I had heard, and I'm sure you did too, uh, was, was that this was going to be where Jack Mead Singh was going to run. Because, I mean, you know, all you have to do is say you're NDP and bingo, bango, you're at Hamilton Center, you're in. Yeah, it's the writing I grew up in. Yeah, well, you know, whether it's Andrew Horvath provincially, Dave Christofferson federally, you know, and uh, it's, it's inter- well, the whole city seems to be going that way. I mean, you know, with a lot of NDP orange here. Uh, and so you got to ask yourself, why not this writing? And, and I understand that, obviously, because Christofferson's not really stepping aside. He's just not going to run for re-election. But you got to wonder, was that one of the discussions that Jagmeet Singh had with Christofferson? And maybe he said, no, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, I don't want to get fully into speculation here, but you have to also recall that there was some uh, bad blood between um, Jagmeet Singh and, uh, and Christopherson when um, Singh uh, punished Christopherson by taking him, uh, uh, removing him from a, uh, a committee 
because he he did not vote along party lines on on an issue, uh, and that led to an incipient uh, caucus revolt. It was led by Charlie Angus and and, and Jagmeet Singh had to uh, recant and and, and give um, Christopherson his job back. Christopherson obviously very popular in that caucus and yeah. it's been around uh, like forever. And there was a sense uh, that Singh had overstepped his. Uh, his authority in, in in punishing David Christopherson. So I mean, this is just strictly in the realm of speculation. Uh, if Christopherson's listening, uh, you got phone messages from me. I'd like to talk to you about it. But <laughs> it may be that he just didn't um, feel enough, um, um, you know, kinship or, or friendliness uh, to the to the leader to step aside for him. Well, and and again, as you say, we're getting into the realm of speculation, and we really don't know what was going on. Oh, but, I don't know that. Yeah. But so, why Burnaby South then? As, as you mentioned in the piece, Tim, uh, the NDP held that seat. Uh, I think the guy who holds it now is actually going to run for mayor, isn't he? In, in, right. in Vancouver, so so he's yeah, going to step down. But yeah. but but they only won by a couple of hundred votes last time, didn't they? They won by five hundred forty-seven okay. votes. Now it's a it's a new uh, it was a new riding in two thousand fifteen, but it is it is a solid NDP territory. Uh, I mean. Parts of this riding have been held were held for years by Sven Robinson. Um, the party loves to tell you that Tommy Douglas ran in a by-election out there and won, and then was re-elected in a couple general elections out there. Um, so, you know, when it comes to safe NDP seats, you know, 547 votes doesn't constitute safety. But uh, there, were, there were really no other options. If Hamilton Center was off the table, he. I know Singh toyed with the idea of running a Outremont, which is Tom Mulcair's uh, riding. Mulcair has resigned, but that would have, that was fraught with uh, peril because uh, you know nobody really thinks the NDP can hold that seat, and the symbolism of losing the former leader's seat in the province that was once a stronghold where you seem to be waning. Uh, there was just too much difficulty there, so you know. So that leaves Burnaby South at this point. If you want to get in the uh, into the house, because this, this will probably this will undoubtedly be the last round of by elections before a general election, uh, if you know the prime minister decides to uh, actually uh, uh, call by elections, he he could just let this um, just blend into the general election uh, uh, period. But I, I I doubt they'll do that. I think they will call by elections. There's another element at play here that uh, that you, you write about, and I was fascinated to get your read on this. Uh, when a leader, such as in this situation, Jagmeet Singh, is going to win a by-election to get a seat, uh, there has been almost a courtesy that has been extended by the other political parties to say, well, we're either not going to contest it or we're not going to run anybody of any importance. In other words, we'll give you a free ride to get in here, okay? Uh, I don't get the sense that's happening here. Oh, it's not going to happen at all. I mean, I mean, you've got the liberals already worried about losing seats in British Columbia. They're not going to just give one away here. No, well, the, that convention, and you're right, there is, there is that convention. It's generally been accorded to an opposition leader. Um, it, I mean, it's not written down anywhere. But, you know, I, I reached out to the other parties, and, and both of them pointed out that, I think with the recent example only of uh, Joe Clark when he uh, returned in 2000, uh, and ran in uh, Nova Scotia, uh, and, and the other party stepped aside. That that convention generally is not accorded to third party leaders. And there's another uh, another uh, aspect at play here. The one party that never um, seemed to play by that convention was the NDP. So um, it's a little tough for the NDP to, to say, you know, can our guy have a free ride here? Because they have not 
they, for example, were the only party, I, I believe, that ran a candidate against uh, Stephen Harper in Calgary when he was uh, elected the uh, the alliance leader uh, in 2002. So, you know, they, they, they haven't played this game, so uh, they can't really uh, expect that the other parties are going to accord them that courtesy. And I got to tell you, the liberals, uh, you know, there, there's an open question. There are people who will tell you that maybe the liberals uh, want Singh in Ottawa because he's not going to perform well there and, and he can just take his party down there and Canadians can get a better idea what this guy's all about. I think it's more likely they, they, they have an opportunity here for an incredible daily double. If they can take out uh, Outremont, Mulcair, the former uh, leader's riding, and defeat Singh, uh, the current leader in Bur- Burnaby South, uh, that that would be incredibly deflating to the NDP. Um, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but uh, you know, I do know that liberals are uh, looking at that and thinking, you know, I, I think they're going to put a, a big, strong push in Burnaby South for sure. But, you know, trying to predict winners in, in Quebec elections is a fool's game, isn't it, Tim? I mean, the, the political lines are pretty blurry over there, and, and the voters can be very fickle. Yeah, but Utremont was Mulcair's writing, and it was it, and he was elected on uh, the strength of his name and his profile. He had been a uh, provincial cabinet minister and had resigned in a, uh, a, 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 a an environmental question that was was in the news at all times. So he was known. But he was think, he was a liberal then. Yeah, yeah. So it didn't it didn't matter. That's what I mean. He was elected on being Tom Mulcair. Yeah. So, so Outremont has been Tom Mulcair more than NDP. It was a traditional liberal riding before that, and there's all all, all signs are um, that it's going to uh, uh, head back liberal. But you're you're right. I mean, by elections are wild cards. Um, you know, the, the the Burnaby South numbers also uh, in 2015, as you recall, there was a late Trudeau surge, and uh, although they didn't take Burnaby South, part of that surge made that riding a lot closer than people expected. Uh, there's not going to be a, uh, any Trudeau surge out in Burnaby South, I wouldn't think, in a by-election. Uh, you know, so you know, logically, Singh should win this. Um, it'll be all hands on deck time, and he will have the provincial NDP machinery behind him. So it's it's hard to think that he could lose this, but... Um, you know, you got to play the game at by-elections and, you know, turnouts at by-elections, some strange things can happen. Is he going to play the pipeline card? I mean, he's pretty adamant about his opposition to, to obviously, to the pipeline, to what was going on with the Kinder, Kinder Morgan situation. Yeah. But yeah. I, I understand, though, that they, if, if, when you get into some of the major cities, like especially around the Vancouver area, that it's about 50-50. I, you know, it, it, that could be diab- it, it could be poison to, to, to have a stand as, as severe as that. I mean, because there are some people that want to see this thing happen. He has finally uh, jumped off the fence, and yes, he is opposed to the uh, to the uh, Trans Mountain expansion. Uh, no ifs, ands, or buts. However, uh, you know the, the guy he's re- uh, seeking to replace, Kennedy Stewart, is, was the MP for the riding, um, and and Singh is a national leader. Now, Kennedy Stewart actually got himself arrested and convicted for um, obstruction on uh, uh, protesting the, the pipeline. Yeah. Uh, it's tougher for a national leader to do that because you know you're you're more than just the MP or the um, a hopeful MP uh, from Burnaby South. You are a national leader, uh, and it's it's going to be harder, much harder for a national leader to go to the ramparts because you know just one example. You know he'll he'll be seeking support from uh, unionized uh, workers across the country, including steel workers, and a lot of the steel workers, the rank and file. They look at pipelines and they see jobs. So you know it's that 
never-ending yin and yang between the uh, the environment and and unionized jobs that uh, often make uh, it difficult for progressive or, or left of center uh, uh, leaders because it's it's a tough call and he's got to keep in mind that he is a national leader and he's got you know he's got to deal with sensibilities uh, throughout the prairies and Ontario Quebec and not just Burnaby South. It's a great piece. It's on uh, the Trust Star website. A by election bid without a net. Tim Harper. Thanks as always, Tim. Have a great weekend. Great to talk to you again, Bill. Thanks for calling. Okay. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, about one in seven cannabis-consuming drivers reportedly driving, getting behind the wheel within two hours of actually using the substance. That's kind of a startling number, I got to tell you. Why do they do this? I mean, isn't this supposed to be dangerous? Uh, Isn't that impaired driving? Well, there are those that will say absolutely not. But clearly, a number of people uh, just seem to be very comfortable with this. Not only that, a number of uh, users also don't have any problem at all getting into a car with somebody who has uh, recently been using pot. Uh, So clearly, they they don't seem to see as much of a, a danger to doing any of this stuff. Uh, I want to get some clarity on this, and uh, we're pleased to welcome to the program Ivan Rosvrana, who is a Canada's expert at Hill and Knowlton Strategies, recognized as uh, the industry expert in the field of medical cannabis and the emerging regime of legalized cannabis. Uh, Ivan, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could jump in here with us today. Well, thanks very much for having me. I, I always uh, do this proviso at the beginning. I have no skin in this game. I don't use the stuff. Uh, probably never. I don't know, but the reality is it's it's here, and I think that's maybe one of the the things we have to lay right out there. I know some people are just dead set opposed to this, but uh, it's coming, and we have to learn how to deal with this and and how to to, to work around it and work with this. I listen, Bill. I, I agree a hundred percent with that. We have to learn about it and how we're going to deal with it because it is coming. And I think you know the key part. I, I found that statistic very interesting too. Um, is education and awareness on it. And we have to learn more about uh, cannabis because it's a really unique product, as everybody is aware, because it does have that real recreational aspect to it, but it also has a, a very interesting medical side to it. Well, and I know, as I'm sure you do, Ivan, people that use it recreationally and have for years, uh, but I also have come to know a number of people that use it as, as, a, as a tool for pain management uh, over yep. the last number of years, and, and that's a very legitimate side. I, I've mentioned to my listeners in the past that uh, that my wife, of course, is the, the past president of the Scleroderma Association, uh, one of those terrible uh, diseases, of course, uh, and and pain is part of that, of course. Uh, when you when you're talking about autoimmune diseases, uh, and I've I've hosted a couple of the sessions there when they've had conferences about this and talked to some of the people in the industry, and some of the people that are dealing with uh, with chronic injuries, and uh, and they swear by this stuff as as a very legitimate tool for pain management, and and that has to be part of the conversation. Uh, listen, I agree. Uh, it is, I think, a legitimate tool as long as we recognize that, A, it's not the panacea for everything, and that, like anything, we want to be careful how it's used and by how much. And uh, my, my one question on the stat, though, and I, and I think, you know, the people that do use this on a regular basis would be, you know, on that and people using it, how much of it was THC and how much was the other component of a CBD? Was it a mix and so forth? Because one, obviously, THC has the psychoactive part to it, whereas the CBD doesn't. And then does that actually determine impairment or not is what my question would be well let's talk about that and and maybe if you could explain for our listeners who don't understand the difference between those two what they are and and how it relates vis-a-vis impairment well absolutely so and you know to to really make this straightforward and i and i'm probably uh making it a little bit too simple but 
you know, on the THC side, that's the psychoactive component. So that's that's the component that, you know, gets you high, for lack of a better word. Um, on the other hand, the CBD has various properties too, mm-hmm. which uh, what we're learning and will continue to learn, it helps with that pain management. But it doesn't have that psychoactive component. And then, of course, there's a combination between the two that, you know, can work together on a whole host of different levels. And that's what's fascinating about it. But, you know, to your very first comment, I mean, I think we have to learn more about how that actually works because the impairments, you know, typically if you're feeling good and, and you're um, enjoying life, as it were, I mean, are certain judgments called into question versus, you know, you're also feeling good, but it's a pain management tool too, or it's pure CBD, right? Uh, so that definition, it, impairment, it is a difficult one to figure out with this product. Well, and, and in a broader discussion about impairment, I mean, we, we're talking about pot or it could be talking about alcohol. I mean, any, any kind of medication that's going to have an altering effect on your, on your body or your brain, for that matter, uh, has to be considered. I mean, you know, there are other medications yes. you can be taking, too, where they say don't use heavy equipment. Well, that means a vehicle, Absolutely. right? Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And I think... That's what we're going to have to try to figure out, uh, you know, on that, on how, because it affects people differently, and it depends on how much you take and the dose and the type of dose and the type of strain you use. But you're absolutely right. Like, if we are going to talk about, A, treating it like any other sort of medication, then, yeah, there's, you know, don't drive using this product because it'll make you drowsy. Don't operate heavy uh, machinery, for instance. Uh, so cannabis has to fall into that, and clearly then the other flip side is, yeah, on the recreational side, if you treat it like alcohol and it has those types of effects, um, you shouldn't generally consume it, right, I would argue. But uh, I think we still need a lot of work on it, and I know it's coming to October 17th, so I think this is an ongoing discussion, and we have to manage that in a responsible way. Well, part of the frustration here for those of us that are trying to gather some of that information, Ivan, is... I, I can pick up a report today that says uh, doctors say, no, if you use this properly and under proper, you know, subscription, it's okay. Then I'll, get, I'll read another report the next day from another group of doctors that say, no, 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 no. This damages young adult brains. Uh, it can have long-term effects like this. You shouldn't be touching this stuff at all. You don't know where to go. You don't know who to believe. Well, I, I think, you know, I, I do, I, I totally understand the frustration on that. I do think the research is, is being developed, uh, yeah. whether it's on the public or the private sphere, that yeah. a, com- a lot of companies and public institutions are looking at this. Uh, so, you know, we will have to discern that over time, but it's a longer period, unfortunately, and I, I get the frustration. But I think as we tend to start to normalize this a little bit, and other countries, especially Europe, is really looking at the medical aspects of it, I think we'll start to get a better clarity in the long run. Well, and of course, the problem here when we start talking about impairment, of course, is, is not just use, but abuse, uh, yeah. as, as there is with alcohol. And to that end, Ivan, uh, and we all know about breathalyzers, and we all know that uh, there has been a standard that has been set now that, well, you shouldn't be drinking getting behind the wheel at all. But if you do, uh, you know, you can have so much beer or so much wine or so much hard liquor, uh, and if you have more than this, you fall over the line. Are we at that point where we've made that mathematical uh, calculation when it comes to using pot? Uh, personally, I don't think so. I think, again, that's the frustrating thing. I think it's complex. It's There's not a one test that will actually determine that because i think you know what we've seen too is it can be in your system for a long time where all the effects of impairment have worn off but it will still give you a positive reading whatever that reading happens to be and so i don't think there's i I know the government is saying uh, they're coming out with a test i think that still has to be studied uh, a lot um so really in doubt um with that you know i would say on the on the consumption side refrain from using it if you know you're going to be driving 
um, within a period of time, whether it's two or three hours. And on the medical side, I think we have to have a discussion about that um, to understand it a little bit better. But that's that comfort level for an awful lot of us to say, well, you know what, I, I can use it as long as I, uh, if it's one joint or whatever, I don't know how many, yeah. mil- whatever yeah. the case might be, that I can I can still do that. That's like saying, yes, I had a glass of white wine with dinner, but I can still drive. We're, yeah. we're not there yet. We don't have that comfort level. I don't think so, I think, unfortunately. And I understand, you know, people who will say, look, it, I know myself and I know this product very well, and I, and I fully get that. I think we... Uh, have to have a comfort level overall in society, and I think these standards do have to be set, but there has to be a lot more work, unfortunately, to be done. But you've, I, I know, I, I was a little skeptical about the StatsCan story as well, but I've, I've, I'm sure you've talked to people, I certainly have, that will tell me that, no, 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 listen, if I, if I you know, ingest some of this stuff or have, smoke, whatever it's going to be, I'm actually more relaxed. I'm a better driver if I, if I have this stuff in my system at the time. And, and I, I worked with a guy years ago when, when I was in Toronto radio. I mean, this Friday afternoon, he, he, his father lived in London, Ontario, and he got behind the, the wheel of the, you know, driving down to London every Friday afternoon. He says, yeah, I just roll a big fat one and just takes me. I said, are you sure that's safe? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Uh, I, I, there, I'm skeptical about that, too, because I'm hearing different stories from different people. Well, yeah, I, I think that's the big problem, right, is we have to take this anecdotal evidence uh, and then start putting it into a proper study. Uh, but, you know, I have sat across the table from people, uh, um, not driving, but fully functional, but they're taking uh, very interesting doses of cannabis, fully functional, fully cognizant, and they do it to manage their pain, right? And then so that, that does make them actually function a lot better. But uh, so I... You know, I think that's great, and I would agree with it. I think we have to translate it, you know, to your point earlier about something that gives everybody in society a comfort level. I don't want to demonize it whatsoever, but I think we have to understand a little bit about, okay, if it does have these effects, which we know it does, then we have to be a little bit, uh, we have to be responsible about it. And we have to find a method, and it will be very difficult. It's not easy whatsoever. That sort of satisfies uh, that requirement. Are you concerned, Ivan, that we're careening towards this legalization date in October where we still have a lot more questions than we have answers? Uh, no, actually, to tell you the truth on that. So I know I said we have to take some time, and I know people think the October 17th date is rushed, but I think we, it's important that we do get it in and we adapt. I think that's the biggest thing that I would be worried about is afterwards is we make sure we take the learnings, good, positive, negative uh, and move that forward and allow a province's government's people to change that. And so I, I believe in the October 17th date. I think we've been talking about this for a long time. Mm-hmm. The medical system has certainly been here for a long time. Um, I think we have to have it implemented, but I think then the watchword is, okay, what are we learning? And let's make sure we can pivot and learn and change things as we do. And I think that is very important after the October 17th date. Ivan ross uh cannabis expert, uh, Hill and Knowlton Strategies. Get a webpage that people can go to to get some of the uh, information. You're just a wealth of, of details and information about this stuff. Well, uh, you know, Health Canada, I think, has done an excellent job on putting out a lot of information. So I would simply Google Health Canada and cannabis, uh, and you can certainly come to the H&K website. Uh, we do have some insights on uh, cannabis also. Excellent. Thanks again, Ivan. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. Uh, the, the study, of the, the, obviously, we use as the foundation for the discussion, of course, is the Stats Canada thing about people that are using pot and getting behind the wheel and driving. Uh, and there are passengers that will get in the car with somebody who's been doing that, too, and they don't seem to have a problem. Joining us on the uh, the program now to talk about that is, uh, well, we'll call him Dave, uh, who did that for some time, actually. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the program today. Not a problem, Bill. You, you, I'd like to say hi to Ivan as well. You've made some very valid points. Well, and, and again, a lot of questions, not enough answers. Now, you were, are you still a user? 
I am, but I'm not as avid as I used to be. Uh, it's more so people have been working on pot like it's the cure for cancer, so it hits me a lot harder. So my intake has become a lot more relaxed. Now, are you uh, recreational or is this medicinal? Recreational. Okay. Uh, at what point, uh, and we, don't, we want to go back and, and reference this time about, you know, getting high and then getting behind the wheel. And, and I, I almost hesitate to use that phrase, getting high, because in, in many people's minds, that's in the eyes of the beholder. Like, no, I wasn't high. I had a joint, but I wasn't high. I was just relaxed. Uh, yeah. Describe your feelings and as, as you thought, no, this is cool. I can do both. Well, I would always agree that, uh, yes, you would be impaired. You have ingested a foreign substance into your body. But in some cases, you know, some people can handle it better. In my case, I didn't feel like I was endangering myself or others. And much like you said with your friend, I actually felt like I was more uh, more focused on the road. I'd be more courteous to other drivers. I was living in Burlington, so traffic wasn't so bad. But I would argue that when I moved to Brampton, oh, yeah, no, don't really do that. Oh, you've driven on the 410, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> uh, exactly. I, yeah, I, I get where that's coming from. But now, I, I, again, I've heard that descriptor in the past as well, Dave. And when you say you were more focused, it's because you knew that you were impaired, and I better be careful so I don't do anything stupid? I think that, yeah, subconsciously, yeah, that was on the back of my mind. Because I've heard that with people that consume too much alcohol, too. Maybe, you know, a couple of beers or three beers or whatever and get behind the wheel. And they say, oh, no, 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 I was really paying attention. Well, sure you were because you're afraid you're going to get caught. But in some cases, you're only really focusing on the lines ahead of you. You're not focusing on the drivers beside you, and anything could still happen. So I think pot should really be treated as one animal. Uh, but Ivan was saying, like, there's different types of pot. There's, you know, your uppers, your downers. There's your high energy. There's your low energy. There's stuff to get rid of pain. There's stuff to make you hungry. So really, it's inconclusive as to whether someone is able to drive on pot because there are so many different types out there so i would say treat it like the same animal treat it like you we do with alcohol if you've ingested a certain amount and you've driven within a certain period of time it should be a criminal offense what about reaction time that's that's always the question people talk about when they talk about impaired whether it's pot or alcohol or, or prescription drugs or anything else you're always concerned about reaction time and you're right as long as you're going this way and there's not a whole lot going on, but all of a sudden, you know, things can happen on the roads, and, and it's okay in that split second. Can you respond? Can you react? Can you do the right thing? Did you feel confident that you still had that ability? Uh, it, it's a yes and no. Um, I never really came in contact with a scenario where I needed to react split second while I was uh, under the influence, but given the scenario, I would probably say maybe not. But different strokes for different folks. Some people might be able to handle it even better than I can. And it's like some people can handle the alcohol better. Now that, uh, that as I say, we're not, with October coming up here, this is going to be legal. Uh, the government controlled to a certain extent anyway. I mean, we're not even quite sure how they're going to sell the stuff in Ontario just yet. But the reality is, uh, is, is, is quality control a factor here? You mentioned about there's so many different kinds that are available right now. That uh, Would that assuage some of the fears people have right now because you're going to know what you're getting? I believe, yes, that would help because that way you can tailor it to what you're accustomed to. Because in some cases nowadays, if I have just the right amount, I go into anxiety. And I wouldn't get behind the wheel of a car if I was in that state. Dave, listen, I really appreciate you joining us today and, uh, and your very candid comments. Thanks so much for this.
And thank you, Bill. And thank you, Ivan. You've been very informative. Yeah, it has. It's a very and that's why we try to do this. Thanks again. Have a great weekend. Uh, we we want to bring this forward, and because I know that there are people that are adamantly opposed, some that are adamantly in favor. Uh, it, it's happening. That's the reality. And and I know we've talked to police services about that, and and they're a little skittish about what's going to be happening. Uh, because obviously there's concern about impairment and what's going to be happening. So this is certainly not the end of the discussion, but I think a very important part of the discussion. Thanks so much both, I guess, for doing that. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.